Ava woke up on Tuesday morning, uh, the way she always does, by reaching for her phone and reading BBC News. Uh, she's anxious even as the app loads up because she knows that news is usually bad. But she does it anyway because she's hopeful. Hopeful of good news. But story after story of the struggles people face, of the sufferings people go through, whether self-inflicted or at the hands of others, they leave her with a fair amount of despair. Work provides no escape for her. She's a GP. She's at the coalface, really, of daily suffering, certifying deaths, giving people test results, referring others to social work or safe houses. She sees it all. As a Christian, she knows God. And she knows that God knows about these things. But she finds herself wondering at times, why is God not doing something about this? Andy has similar questions, but not about suffering. It's about sin and temptation. Andy has struggled with the same sins for 20 years and feels like he's made no ground and even regressing. Pride, passivity, downright laziness were once fought hard and he'd pray to God for progress, but these things haven't gone away. Sometimes Andy wonders if God really does love him. Most of the time though, Andy doesn't actually care that much. He doesn't care about reading his Bible, praying, about his conduct with his wife, who feels more like a mother than a wife. He doesn't really care that much about his kids too. Work is his escape uh, because work feeds his pride. He knows it's all fake, but actually he just doesn't care. Last week, a dear brother in the church called in, to, uh, called in love to express concern. And in his heart of hearts, Andy really does believe in God, but can't help wonder, why is God not doing something about this sin. I wonder if you've ever asked questions like that. Why is God not doing something about this evil and this suffering? Why is God not doing something about this sin and temptation? Well, listen, Revelation 5 tells us that he is and he will. And we know that because of this scroll that we see in God's hands because of what this scroll in his hand says. So let's look at the passage in chapter five together, asking first of all, what is in the scroll? Well, if you were watching last week, you'll know that John has been invited into heaven to take a sneaky peek at what's going on right now and to tell sinful and suffering churches like those in Revelation two and three and like ours, what he sees. In chapter four, John saw God reigning in glory, worshipped as creator and sustainer of all things. And as the description of God continues into chapter five and of this throne room continues, John bizarrely zeroes in on a scroll in God's hand. Now scrolls like these, sealed up, uh, rolled up with writing on both sides and sealed, were quite common back then in John's day. But to have writing on both sides of the document and sealed with seven seals was a bit, of, a bit more uncommon. So it wasn't just a letter, in other words. It signified a, a royal document, an important document, a royal decree, if you like, so that what it says goes. And interestingly, this scroll becomes a central part of what happens 
uh, not just in this chapter, but in the chapters to come. And based on what we'll see when each of these scrolls are, uh, these seals are broken and the scroll opened, we can say that this scroll in God's, the scroll in God's hand is God's plan to rescue the world from sin and suffering and to make all things new. The scroll says God will make that happen in summary in two ways, by dealing with evil and removing what's wrong, that's judgment, and by making all things new and doing what's right for his people, that's called redemption. That's our rescue package as God's people. Now, Christian brothers and sisters, isn't that what Ava and Andy long for? Isn't that what they doubt he's doing? Well, this inside scoop into what's going on in heaven just now tell us that he's doing it. He has a plan and he's working it out. But how? How is that going to happen? Well, the passage tells us somebody needs to open the scroll. I guess you could think of this like a will. A will contains the instructions of the one who wrote it. Uh, I've got a will. My wife and kids will inherit my millions if I die, but uh, they don't get those millions at the moment of my death. That only happens when on a later date, an executor opens the will, reveals its contents and legally puts it into effect. Now, that in a sense is what this scroll in chapter five needs, but who can do that? Who's the executor? Who's qualified? Who's named? Who is worthy? Worthy is the word that's used throughout this chapter. Who is it? Well, verses three and four tell us actually no one is worthy to open the scroll. That's why we read in verse four, John saying, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, why is this so devastating to John? Why all the tears at this stage? Well, as Revelation 6, 7 and 8 will show, it really is the act of opening up each seal in sequence that brings about the events described within the scroll. So if no one is actually found to open the scroll, none of it will happen. The events won't take place. Uh, evil will not be judged. Suffering will not be removed. Redemption will not come. So despair like Ava's will be felt ongoingly by endless billions. Salvation will never be fully fulfilled. Guilt, like Andy's, will be the experience of billions forever. Now do we understand John's tears? We would cry too at the thought of no judgment, no redemption, no justice. We should bawl our eyes out at the prospect of that. But it's interesting to note, isn't it, that heaven allows John's despair for a moment. Why is that? Because, spoiler alert, Jesus is there. Uh, he's the one who has spoken to John and invited him into this kind of open door to heaven to see what's going on. So why conceal himself for long enough to let John feel devastation for as long as it takes for him to weep and weep? Well, God wants us to feel John's devastation so that we can realise that without redemption, it's hopeless. We're hopeless. We should feel that deeply. 
but he also allows us to feel John's devastation, his low, so that we can then feel the elation or the high of the good news that there is to come. That there is, after all, someone who is worthy to take the scroll and make our greatest longings reality and wipe away John's and wipe away our tears. So who is it? Who is going to open the scroll? That's what verses 5 to the end of the chapter show. Well, it shows that it's Jesus, that Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll. And we start to see in these verses, in verses five and six in particular, why? What is it that makes him worthy? Well, first of all, he's worthy because he's a conquering king, as verse five says. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So Jesus is worthy because he's the majestic fulfillment of these promises, great promises, made to the great, 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 great grandchildren of these Old Testament greats of David and Judah. So he's worthy because he reigns victoriously as they were promised. And not just over one nation, but over all nations. And not just for a short time, but for forever. No one else is worthy of the accolade of a forever king. But Jesus is also worthy because he is a slain lamb. Now, as John heard the elders say, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah and so on, and he, as he might have expected as he turned round to see a lion, you know, grand like Aslan is made to be in the Chronicle of, of Narnia movies. But the lion he hears about looks really quite sheepish, like a lamb. Now, verse 6 says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, and it's encircled by the living creatures and the elders too. Now, we have to remember that Revelation is highly symbolic. John isn't seeing an actual lamb. He's seeing Jesus bearing the marks of his death and interpreting those marks for us using imagery that's common in the Bible and common to his people as we read it. So Christ being pictured as a slain lamb points to the fact that he was, well, slaughtered, that he died like the lambs in Exodus who died as substitutes for God's people. It's an obvious reference really to Jesus' death on the cross that you can read about in the four gospel accounts and that you can read about, read explained in the rest of the New Testament, indeed read foretold in all of the Old Testament. But Jesus is worthy because he died. He died to redeem and rescue people from their sin. He died to redeem this groaning world from its fallen state. That's what verse 9 highlights. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And look at what he purchased them from by his blood, by his death. This is what it achieves. He purchased the people from sin and for a purpose. He purchased a people for God. Verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom. A kingdom. A people drawn from every tribe, language, people and nation to belong to God. To be a people, one people under his rule. And not just to be a kingdom, but priests to serve our God 
In other words, a people who worship and serve God with the entirety of their lives. It is what they do. Worship defines every aspect of what they do. And they're not just a kingdom and not just priests, but amazingly, co-rulers to reign on the earth. In other words, to live as Adam and Eve should have lived in Eden. In God's place, under God's rule, by God's word. That's the way it was meant to be. We, while we wait our final redemption, that's the way we are to live now. Now, all of this together is what makes Christ worthy and him alone. You see, no one else has done what he has done. That's why the slain lamb then becomes the focus of this entire vision, the reason expressed for Christ's worthiness, and the focus of heaven's worship, and the one who takes the scroll. That's what we see back up there in verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Let that sink in. Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll. Don't forget what that scroll represents. He's worthy to open the scroll. Indeed, what this passage already tells us is that Jesus has already taken the scroll. It's already in his hand, which means he has already proved his worthiness. If he wasn't worthy, God wouldn't have let him take it. He's already in that inner circle. He is proving his deity by just being there. But he's not burned up for approaching the throne as any other being in existence would be. He is allowed to approach. He is allowed by the Father to be praised by all of heaven who worship Jesus in chapter 5 in the very same terms as they worshipped him, God the Father, in chapter 4. That proves the Christian claim that Christ himself is God and proves again that Christ himself is worthy to take the scroll. Powerful enough to remove sin, remove suffering, judge the world and bring about redemption. So he's proved his worthiness and having, the taken, having then taken the scroll proved that the future is in his hands. All future, all future, your future, my future, it's in his hands. Now ask this, what difference does that make to Ava? How does this help her face up to the sufferings and the struggles that she sees, whether it's on our BBC app or as a GP? How does it help her pray? How does looking forward to the redemption to come energise her ability to endure and lift the despair? Or oh, she should still ache over it. We would, we, God aches over it. We ought to ache over these things, but it ought to move us and energise to mission and to reach out and to love and show compassion. And that's why it changes what she would say to sufferers that she meets. And what difference does this make that the scroll, this, the, the, the scroll, the future is in Christ's hands to Andy? What difference does it make to him? that his future is in Christ's hands, that one day he will actually be free, as Christ has promised, of sin, of guilt and temptation. Well, actually, the first thing to say with Andy is that it opens up the way to repentance and it holds out the prospect of change. And even if that continues to be hard for Andy, according to God's sovereignty, God is still on the throne 
and he calls for trust and promises still, you will one day be rid of this. Otherwise, God is not faithful, but he is. Now, I ask the question as well, what difference would this make to you? What difference does this make to you if you're not a Christian? If you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus as the basis for your stance before God? This passage says your destiny is in his hands. The whole world's destiny is in his hands. And the rest of Revelation is really going to show us in quite stark terms where we stand with God matters. Whether, we, whether our destiny ends with judgment or redemption essentially hinges on whether or not you're sorry for sin and have received the forgiveness that he bought by his blood by being slain. So the encouragement even in this passage is turn from sin. There's time. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Be right with him and then join in the singing. Join in the chorus. Join in the praise of all creation. You see, this is what everybody does when they see the lamb for who he is and see him take the scroll of the world's redemption. They burst out into song. It's Revelation 5 is kind of like a flash mob at first. It starts off with the creatures and the elders falling down and laying the bowls of prayers before the saint uh, of the saints before God. Like they're just giving him glory. When you grasp the cross, when you grasp the lamb, that his that destiny is in his hands, you cannot help but praise. But then everybody joins in. One by one, the angels and creation and Everybody sings what? The glory of the Lamb. Now what a contrast to the start of this chapter. There's so much weeping at the start. It's sad, but they're singing at the end. And that, friends, is even a picture of the difference Christ makes. The difference the Lamb makes. Without him, there's only weeping. With him, there is singing. And we sing because we know we didn't deserve this joy. We sing because he was slain. And because he was slain, we do know this joy. And we sing because this is just the best news we could ever hear. Justice will be done. Evil will be judged and removed. And we who believe will be redeemed and rescued to live with God forever in the new creation. And all this stuff that makes us sad. All the stuff that makes us need hankies and hospitals and hearses. It will be no more. And we'll sing this song forever. Some songs grow old very quickly. We tire of them. We listen to something else. But this song, the song about the Lamb, will never grow old. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honour and praise is a forever song and forever delightful. The song we're going to sing just now in closing has been in my head all week. It's based on this very passage. It asks and answers the questions that people like us, people like Ava, people like Andy ask. Do you feel the world is broken? Yes, of course we do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Yes, absolutely we do. Does our God intend to do something about it? Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Yes. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. He is worthy.